I find myself praying and just thanking God for the people that he brings to CRC. Every single person that for some reason he brings multiple people here every single Sunday. And sometimes it's like, wow, we don't, I don't even know where we're going. It's continually just amazing to see the way that God continues to cause each one of us just to, to be here. And I keep thinking about how different we all are. We're all so different. Some of us were raised in church. Some of us were not raised in church. Some of us were born in Johnson City. Some of us were not born in Johnson City. Some of you all, you all were raised down here in the South. The rest of us that were taught to speak correctly were raised up North. Some of us have wonderful taste in football teams. Other of us do not including those that happen to be in Florida right now. <laughs> and some of us could care absolutely, could not care less about sports. Could not care less. Some of us walked in here extremely happy to be here. Some walked in really unhappy to be here, depressed even. Some of us that walked in here ready to take on whatever the world has to throw at us. Some of us walked in here extremely discouraged at what the world has thrown at us. And I say that because we all come from different backgrounds, we all come from different upbringings, we all come from different religious experiences. And I think the more and more we talk about these kinds of things, the more and more we see that people's backgrounds, people's beliefs, even church beliefs, often are big-time hindrances to people really fully understanding the gospel. And you see that play out in the scripture that we're going to go through today. And I just, I ask that as you, as we go through today, that we would try to not just hear things the way that we've been told growing up. We wouldn't just hear things the way that we think we're supposed to but that it would be founded on Scripture. And that if our backgrounds are not biblically based, then maybe it's something that we need to look at Scripture and say, what does this actually mean? If you didn't guess already, we're in Matthew 13. Um, we just finished up the parables. We just finished up Jesus going through various parables and saying that, I'm telling you this story that hopefully makes sense in your in real life, but here's, here's what it's really meaning. Here's the, the deeper meaning of this. And we're going to see going forward in Matthew 14, Matthew 15, Matthew 16, that you're going to see different people encounter the gospel. You're going to see Jesus meet various people and tell, talk about who he is, and you're going to continue to see the different ways that, that people respond. And it looks very familiar. You can fit almost every one of these upcoming Encounters with Jesus back to the parable of the sower, where three rejected the gospel, and only one did the gospel take root in their heart, and where they ultimately changed by the gospel. We're going to see that going forward in Matthew. And I guess it'd be a good time to note. So, when I say we're going to do Matthew 14, which is next, that'll actually be in January. Um, 
what we're going to do is we're going to take a brief time out from Matthew and um, go through some Advent teachings leading up to Christmas. Um, something that we've constantly said, we're going to talk about it in numerous class tonight, but of the, of the importance of walking straight through books of the Bible. But we also think it's very important to talk about this during the Christmas season and leading up to Advent. So that's going to be the next four weeks. The next four weeks we're going to be talking going through Advent. So we're going to read Matthew 13, 53-58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished, and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So, Jesus says, when he had finished these parables, he went away from there. Jesus has been in Capernaum um, for quite a while now, going through this. And we saw that the people had constantly rejected him. And then he began teaching parables because they were already rejecting him. And he said, he told his disciples, I'm teaching him parables now because they're not understanding. And so he's leaving Capernaum. He's already said, back in Matthew 11, he said, woe to the unrepentant cities. He said, woe to you. Capernaum was one of those cities. And what we see is that now he's coming back to Nazareth. This is not Jesus' first time returning to Nazareth. If you look, you don't have to actually look there, but in Luke 4, there's some different disagreements on whether or not Luke 4 is referring to Jesus at the same time, the same occurrence of returning to Nazareth. And initially, I was very much on that side of things. And um, there's various, I feel like everybody, there's various scholars who disagree on various things, and this is one of those. I'm not going to get into it, but I, I believe this is Jesus' second time going back to Nazareth. You're going back to his hometown. Might be a good lunch discussion if you want to do some research or something. But the first time Jesus was in Nazareth, people had rejected him. He had taught in their synagogues, just like he did here. He had basically called them out for their pride, their Jewish pride. And said that in the Old Testament, he pointed back to a reference in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And said that, you rejected God then, so I went to the Gentiles. They got really upset with him. It says they tried to throw him off the city wall, and then Jesus went away. He said he slipped through their midst. But then again, here in Matthew 13, again, the people in his hometown are rejecting him. People in his hometown are, are not receiving him. They're, it says they're astonished by what he's teaching, but then it says that they're offended by him. And as I, as I read and I read this week, I read a ton this week, I feel like, the one, there's this one phrase that really just kept sticking out to me. Part of it's mine, part of it's kind of piecing together a lot of things that a lot of people have said. But it says, those with the most privilege are often blinded from the truth of the gospel 
by their own pride. It's like, wait, what does that mean? The Jewish people consistently had enormous privilege. They were, they were God's chosen people. If you remember back to last year, we walked through the Old Testament and looked at specific instances of the ways that God directly spoke to his people, the ways that God directly interacted with the people. I mean, whether it be through, through Exodus and, and pulling them out of slavery. And, and all sorts of things throughout the Old Testament of God speaking. And these people were privileged. They were God's chosen people. And yet, if you read through the Old Testament, time and time and time again, they reject Him. Time and time again, they want more. It's not enough for them. They want more. They want more proof. They want more. They're not satisfied with what God is offering. And their own pride as God's chosen people continues to blind them. The Pharisees. Probably the most privileged. They had the opportunity to study scripture. They're the most educated Jews. They, they study the scripture. They know the law frontwards, backwards, all sorts of ways. And yet they continue. They're blinded by their pride. They're blinded by their pride. And just kind of the big, we're not getting down in individual verses yet, but I think that Americans especially are extremely privileged in this country with our access to hearing about Jesus. Especially down in the South. I jokingly mentioned down in the South earlier, but like seriously, like there are so many churches here. I did I tried to look it up on Google and try to make a radius and try to see how many churches were within one mile of here. I couldn't quite figure it out, but I got to at least 13 within one mile of here. But I know there's more than that. There are a lot of Google Maps wasn't even I was like, I know there's a church there, and it's not on the map, and so many churches. We have such access to the gospel. But yet our own pride continually, I say our, if our American, American people here are continually blinded by our pride. We continually think that it's us doing things. They, down here, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people, even in this church, that says, I've been a Christian forever. I've been a Christian my whole life. We got to get to talk, and I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean you've been a Christian your whole life? When they've probably gone their whole life thinking they were a Christian their whole life because mom and dad told them that. Mom and dad reminded them that, oh, yeah, you prayed a prayer when you were five. You've been in church your whole life. You're involved with the church. Of course you've been a Christian your whole life. And people are reinforced that. I, I don't know that the church has always done a good job of teaching among like in this. And I think that we're so privileged because there's so many churches, there's so many people, there's so many professing Christians that our own pride of being a Christian sometimes blinds people to really, truly hear the gospel. I'm going to read 44 or 45, or sorry, 54 or 45. It says, And coming to his hometown, he called them in their synagogue, so they were astonished, and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? 
go ahead and go on. It's not this the carpenter's son. It's not his mother called Mary. And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. And are not all his sisters with us. Where then did this man get all these things? See, these people, the people of this region were privileged. They, they had begun to see Jesus' work and Jesus' teach. We see, the first time he was there in Nazareth, he was teaching them. Then he, he leaves and he goes out and he's been in Capernaum and he's in other areas. And it says, there's various places to say, his fame is growing. More and more people are encountering Jesus. And I've read various studies that show, like, at this time, how many people would have heard of Jesus at this time. And the number is remarkable that the percentage of people that probably would have known of this Jesus guy. Not necessarily known the truth of who he is, but they knew of the Jesus guy. They knew of the guy that was doing miracles, the guy that was teaching really astonishing things. But I just want to point back to some of the things that this by now, what Jesus has done. The miracles that Jesus has performed. To this point, he's healed blindness. He's healed leprosy. He's healed a man that was mute. He's healed a man with a withered hand. Earlier in Matthew, we see that he healed those with various diseases, pains, and those oppressed by demons. He's healed epilepsy. He's healed paralysis. Matthew didn't mention it, but by now he's turned water into wine. He's Calm the storm with his voice. He's raised the dead. And he continues to fulfill the prophecy that's in Isaiah 53. That says, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He's continued to do this time and time again. People here knew that. They've heard him teach. And I think it's really easy to think that Jesus is performing these miracles, trying to prove who he is. But I don't think that's why Jesus was performing miracles. It wasn't to prove who he was. It did prove who he was, but that wasn't why he was doing that. You see, we've read about it in Matthew so far, and Luke talks about this a lot, but that he healed them, he, he taught them because of his compassion for them, because he loved them. He, called, he said, you're like sheep without a shepherd, harassed. And his compassion for them, he loved them, he healed them, he taught them. Not to prove who he was, but that did prove who he was. And yet the people continued to see, see him do these things. They didn't reject that he was healing people. They didn't reject that he was teaching like a, a smart person. They didn't reject that he had continued to perform miracle after miracle. But what they did continue to reject was that it was done by the power of God. And going back to that whole privilege thing. I think that when you're privileged, you're so easy. It's so easy to neglect or to ignore God working. I think, I'm trying to think modern day, how we're very quick to praise our doctors, praise our science, praise our technological advances, because we're smart people. We've developed these things. Look at our modern society. We're quick to do that, and sometimes we're slow to Acknowledge that God worked a miracle through that doctor who healed that disease. Because we see, we see, we can't, we can't ignore the fact that someone was healed, that that a, that a healing took place. 
But I think sometimes we're slow to acknowledge who healed that person. Because we see the things that we've done. We see the, the science. We see our progression. We see all these things we've learned. Look how smart our doctors are. Look at our Quillen College of Medicine that's ranked number seven in the nation in rural health training. I work for you, too. see that. But we say all these we've done that got the good kind of education. But we don't see that it's God continuing toward miracles. And that's continuing something I think we miss. In our privileged country, our privileged country. And I think people in various parts of the world might see these very same things very differently. And any talk of Jesus, these kind of things continue. Jesus saying that, hey, I'm doing this because I'm God. And people keep rejecting that. I keep saying that one word, that pride word, but pride keeps getting in the way. Because I'm sure you've heard this said before, but the gospel is offensive because it attacks the pride. I've seen a lot. What does it mean to offend someone? What does it mean to be offensive? Like how do you offend someone? You basically you take a shot at them. You say something that's demeaning. You say something that belittles another person. Whether that be something you say intentionally or maybe it's something someone hears wrong. But an offense is something that belittles someone. So, so wait, how is the gospel offensive based on what I just said? And like, how do we accurately present the gospel to someone? Do we say that, hey, Jesus loves you. God has a perfect, good plan for your life. Yeah, yeah that's good. But is that enough? Is that, is that, can you say that and accurately present the gospel to someone? I don't think so. I did this a couple weeks ago. Just walk straight through the gospel. What, what is this good news we keep talking about? But what I want to do as I do this is kind of separate make two very clear distinctions going through this. The word you, you, me, you, and then Jesus. Because I think when we start looking at it like this, we see what it means for the gospel to be offensive. Because it goes right at your pride. So God created you. You, in his own image. But you messed up. You sinned. You continue to sin. I continue to sin. You continue to want the things of this world. You continue to want the things of this world. You are utterly incapable to save yourself. All you are doing is digging a deeper hole. Without a miracle from God, you will die in your sin with zero hope. God, who is perfect, who is holy, can be in the presence of nothing less than this. You, being ugly, being stained, being completely full of sin, are not worthy to be loved by God. You are separated from God due to this. You. Do you see how it's a little bit offensive to tell someone these kind of things? You are this, you are this, you are this. 
But in spite of how sinful you are, not were, not how sinful you were, how sinful you are, God loved you, even though he said you're not worthy of that. Because of Jesus' love, he came and died. He lived a perfect life. There was no, there was no sin in him. And that love was for us, back to that you, that were ugly, sinful, undeserving, unable to fix ourselves. But God loved us. And that's only done through Jesus. The wrath that we deserved, as ugly, as sinful, as all these words that are extremely offensive, you start telling people what they are. But God still loved us. And all of a sudden, the gospel has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Jesus. When you start reading that every you in there is extremely negative. Every you is saying, you can't do this. Because, but, but you're the one that messed it up. The gospel says you can't do it. But the gospel says that Jesus can. The gospel says that you are sinful and messed up and Jesus is perfect. It's no wonder these people keep becoming offended because he's, Jesus keeps telling people, hey, get out of your pride that says you're doing this. Get out of your pride that says you're following the law. Get out of your pride that says you're trying to be better, you're trying to fix yourself. That's, that's not how it works. And people are continually offended by that. Continually offended by that here. Maybe you're offended by that, but I keep telling you you're not good enough. That's Bible keeps telling you you're not good enough. That's not easy. But this is beautiful news of hope that people that say, yep, I'm not good enough. I've got zero within me that is good enough. But that it's all Jesus. That's my only hope. I've got nothing to hope outside of that. But for those who say, no, it's not what I want, I reject that, then yeah, this causes envy, it causes hate, it causes all sorts of issues that are all built up in pride because they don't want to hear that it's not about them. And to make things worse, it's this guy telling them these things, stepping back into Matthew 13, who they've seen grow up, they know his mother, they know his sisters, they know his brothers. He grew up in their midst. How dare he come onto the scene and tell them to repent? He didn't, he didn't go become educated somewhere. How dare he come back and tell them these kind of things? Now these verse 58. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That's the random one I actually didn't put on there. Yeah. So you have these people that are continually rejecting Jesus. Their pride. They know who he is. They know he's just a God from Nazareth. But they've got to kind of figure it out in and of themselves. And they're offended. And it goes on to say, and he did no mighty works there because of their unbelief. 
there's a really, really, really dangerous teaching that goes along with this verse. It goes along with the parallel verse in Mark about your faith is what's going to heal you. Dale and I had this conversation a couple last week or about the big faith healings you hear about. People come up and it says, if you have faith, God is going to heal you. If you come up with this disease or this, if you have enough faith, God will heal you. And then when God doesn't heal them, it turns into, hey, you didn't have enough faith. Hey, that was on you. If you had enough faith, Jesus would have re responded. Jesus would have performed a miracle if you had enough faith. I think that's extremely, extremely not biblical. Like, our having faith does not enable Jesus to work. Us mustering up faith does not cause Jesus to work. Do you feel how silly that sounds? Hey, our faith makes Jesus work. Our faith enables Jesus to work. If I put batteries in the toy, it's going to work. Like, absurd example, but that's kind of what we're saying. If you look through Scripture, there's many times Jesus responding to the faith of people and healing them. Your faith has made you well. You hear that? Absolutely. But there's also many instances in the Bible where Jesus performs a miracle with zero faith displayed by anyone. He calms a storm. What does he tell his disciples? You didn't have any faith. But Jesus still worked. He feeds 5,000. And his disciples are there having no faith. Where is this food going to come from? In John 9, Jesus heals a blind man that is blind from birth, has displayed no faith. His healing results in him having faith. He has faith through that process. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus didn't have faith. He was dead. Jesus didn't respond to Lazarus' faith. Our faith does not make God work. But I think, but the parallel passage in Mark actually says, and Jesus could do nobody work there because of their faith. Could do. And it's like, people are like, wait, what? What do you mean he couldn't do? It kind of adds into that belief of, you have faith, God is going to work. But it's not that he was unable to perform. It wasn't that Jesus said, oh, they didn't have faith, so I physically, I, I could not do that. But I think if you think about it this way, Jesus, in the desert, being tempted by Satan, could he have turned the rock into bread? Absolutely. Could he have turned the rock into bread? And still been sinless and not done what he wanted to do because he was hungry. Could he have done it? Yeah. Could he have done the bread and still been on his worldly mission to save us? I think that's where you start getting a little... Could Jesus have healed people? Could Jesus have performed miracles? Yes. These people were not looking for... They were looking for a sign. They were looking for entertainment. They were looking for more and more proof that he had already said, you guys are looking for the wrong thing. He was after their hearts. Something we've said time and time again here. Jesus was after their hearts. And that's what he didn't have. He didn't have their hearts at this point. They were already rejecting him. 
for him to do miracles there would have not been his mission. Could he have done them? Yes. Could he have done them and still been on his mission? Doesn't seem like it. And I hope this is something that brings comfort to some people because I really do think that there's a lot of people that are tired, a lot of people that are exhausted, a lot of people that are worn out from carrying the burden of trying to have more faith. It says, if I muster up enough faith, God is going to respond in this way. If I have enough faith, God is going to heal my family member of that disease. God is going to heal me of that disease. Why just have enough faith? Or what about, if I would just have faith that God is going to give me the perfect job. If I would just have enough faith, he would give me a job. It's not about you. First of all, I would say stop giving yourself the power to try to make God move. It's not us making God move. We don't make God act. Second, I would say that that idea of being somehow, even if we're not intentionally saying that, yes, we're making God move, I think sometimes we given that mindset, I think that's a pride issue. That it's our, that it's our faith. It's our faith that is working. I want to jump to Ephesians 2, 8 for a second. It's a very familiar verse for those that have been around the church. It's going to be up on the screen. Verse, Ephesians 2, verse 8. It says, for, great, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. There's some very clear breaks. I'm not an English major, but I'm told that punctuations and all that stuff are very important. Often as I was teaching English in China, they were telling me the grammar rules that I didn't even know. It's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> They were using words, grammar words, that I didn't understand. But I want to break this down a little bit more, this verse. But, okay. So, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. That first line, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's all one. I think often we say, what is the gift of God? What is that thing that is not our own doing? We say, oh, grace. Oh, the fact that we're saved. That says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's not your own doing. That faith is not something we muster up enough to save us. That faith is just as much a gift as the grace. We don't muster up faith. That's not, that's not a burden that we have to bear, that we have to be frustrated by our sensing that God's not working. That's not something we muster up. And I think the people in his hometown who've been reading about, they were rejecting him 
They're saying that no, what I'm mustering up, what we're relying on to save us is good enough. And then they're offended when Jesus says, no, that's not good enough. No. Keep hearing what I'm saying, that you're not good enough. And then Jesus, that Jesus is saying that I am the only way, only hope. So we hear the gospel, there's kind of a twofold response to this, I think. Like when we hear the gospel, is our response that we're offended by what it says about us? Or thankful because of what it says about Jesus? I think it's one or the other. Do we continue to see the miracles that Jesus is performing? Even though sometimes we totally neglect them, we don't see them. Or do we continue to neglect that? Or are we blinded by our own pride that it's us working, it's our faith working, that somehow, oh, I had faith there because God answered. Are we making excuses? You see the kind of, I didn't mention this, but you see them try to say, oh, we know his mother, we know his father. We know he's a carpenter's son. What did that have to do with anything? That was them deflecting from what he was teaching them. The, the, the teachings that he was giving. That's them finding reasons not to believe. Like, I keep saying we, we're privileged. Privileged to be able to sit together in a church. Read the Bible freely. Stand and sing. Windows wide open. But the fact that we're privileged and able to be here, it's not the being here that makes you a Christian. It's not the being raised in a Christian family that makes you a Christian. It's not the mere fact that you might have repeated something when you were five. It's not just that. Being here this morning does not make you a Christian. Claiming to be a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Realizing that the gospel says that Jesus is our only hope to be saved from a world, to be saved from ourselves that are so affected by sin. Believing that is all it takes. That is what makes you a Christian. key word there is all though. Like, it's not something we continue to muster up enough faith. Oh, I've got to continue to impress God by what I'm doing. I'm going to continue to impress God by my works. I'm going to build up my faith to impress God so I'll continue to work. We trust that Jesus is all. That's our only response. And I pray that we would trust that he is all Not our faith, not our pride, not our upbringing, but that He is all we need. If you don't believe, that's my prayer, that you would believe that. But if you're a Christian, you say, I believe this. Jesus is who I'm living for. Then I also want to challenge you to continue to stop trying to do it yourself. You're saying, you must have faith, you must have faith. You're trying to do that. Faith is a gift. We pray for faith, yes. 
We pray that God will continue to show us the truth of the gospel every single day. That's something that a missionary told me in China. He said every day that he wakes up, he prays that God will continue to remind him of the truth of the gospel through the day. That is the same guy that I talked about a couple weeks ago, who I said, if there's someone living out the gospel, it's him. And yet, he prays every day that God would remind him of the gospel, that he is living in a very unreached people group. Faith is a gift. Let's not try to rely on ourselves. Let's not try to rely on ourselves. That's not a burden that we're supposed to bear. Let's pray.